Welcome to Don't You Lie to Me. <laughs> okay, let's go. Don't you lie to me. I'm going to have another drink. Don't you lie to me. Explain that to the kids. Don't you lie to me. Okay, let's hear that story. Let's start interviewing. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Don't You Lie to Me. I'm your host, Jeff Bell, along with our producer, Warren Hicks. With this podcast, we're exploring the visual art scene in North Carolina by bringing you interviews with artists and arts professionals throughout the state. We also want to highlight some current exhibitions that we think you should check out. This is a special live episode recorded at the North Carolina Museum of Art. In this episode, we talk to four different artists who are participating in the North Carolina Museum of Art's Monster Drawing Rally, which takes place August 25th. If you'd like to find out more about the Monster Drawing Rally, please go to don'tyoulietome.com or you can go to ncartmuseum.org slash calendar slash events. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Our Twitter feed is at D-Y-L-T-M-N-C. Enjoy. The following podcast contains adult language. Oh, I like that. Previously on Don't You Lie to Me. All right, let's do this. <laughs> you th- the bit, mm. Have we started recording, Mark? We'll just start with like a hey, the hey there, or the, the hey there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, well, I should learn how periods work. Uh, who, who, uh, a lot of palate jacking going on. And that takes place in my living room every night of the week. Bullshit. <laughs> Way to go, Warren. Fuck you. If you please don't, don't please. I'm pulling this out of my rear end at this very instant. Shit. So I, I, it's, it's not, 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 maybe. Oh, I've always heard people say, your butt might get wet. No way. Oh, yes. Hello. Hello. Do, do you, um, uh, um, but, uh, like, I'll, uh, um, I was probably just going to start peeing my pants or something. Mm-hmm. That's my dream. All right. Uh, and, and it's now I am. You're smart ass. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Um, people call me dickweed and I'm okay with whatever. <laughs> You're such a well-behaved crowd. Everyone, yes, be, be less well-behaved. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the North Carolina Museum of Art, everybody. I'm Jennifer Hicks. I'm the director of programs. We're really excited for you to be here tonight. Now I'd like to introduce our hosts for the evening. Um, I'm going to start with Warren Hicks. Everybody give Warren a round of applause. (laughs) So Warren, you are an artist. You are the producer for Don't You Lie to Me. Uh, What does a podcast producer do? Jeff would like to know that. No idea. Well, this all started... A couple years ago, Jeff and I have been friends for many years, many, many long, excruciating <laughs> years. And he came up to me and said that he wanted to start a podcast, just him having casual conversations with artists. And he loves to talk, so I thought that was a great idea. And then he asked me to produce it. 
And for some reason, I said yes. We now just released our 10th episode, and I think we're both pretty floored by the reception that we've had. It's been great, and it gives us encouragement. Neither one of us had any idea how much work and time is involved. Jen can attest to this. Totally. But we love it, and we want to continue. I think the main goal ultimately is to expand our audience beyond North Carolina to let the world know that North Carolina has a vibrant art scene on par with anyone else. Yeah. As far as what I do as a producer, um, recording, editing, mixing episodes, website, social media. But once we started, I realized I could use this as a vehicle to explore creativity beyond my visual arts. So the fun parts of producing include writing the theme song, coming up with fake ads, not to be, not to be confused with fake news, um, <laughs> writing the music for the ads, coming up with the previously on episodes. It's a lot of work, and if it wasn't Jeff, there's no way I would be doing this. Oh, thank you. That was really sweet. <laughs> yeah, don't get used to that. That's pretty much what I do. Thank you. Yeah, I think that being a producer is one of those things that every time I see producer of some show, I'm like, I know that that's a lot of work, but I have no idea what's included in that. So good to hear, especially for podcasts, because um, I know Jen and I have talked about how it seems easy, (laughs) like it's just recording your voice and boom, but there's so much editing and all that stuff that goes into it. So, well, thank you. I mean, we want it to be entertaining as well as informative. want people to have fun when they listen to it. And we do. Great. Great. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Warren. Everybody? Warren Hicks. All right, next we have Jeff Bell here in the center. Welcome, Jeff. (laughs) Jeff, too, is an artist and the executive director for the Wallace Simpson Whirligig Park and the voice of Don't You Lie to Me. So, Jeff, what drives your conversations on the podcast? Do you prefer to script it out, or do you just let the conversation flow? What do you do? Usually, Warren and I just sort of uh, text or email back and forth and come up with more like bullet points. We definitely do not do any scripting, uh, which is probably not the best thing. But we just want to kind of have ideas in our head as to what we want to talk about and kind of let it flow along and and not, I think if we got too scripted, it would kind of restrict that. Yeah. Yeah. So this is pretty different from your, your day job. Tell us about the park and what you do there. And by the way, there's a Wallace Simpson whirly gig on our property. If you haven't seen it before, notice it on your way out. So yeah, tell us about the park. So if you're not familiar, Wallace Simpson lived outside of Wilson, North Carolina. Um, He made huge whirly gigs. And like Jennifer said, there's one in the park out back. Uh, Several years ago, a nonprofit was formed to purchase the very sort of largest whirly gigs on his property, conserve them, move them into town from the farm, and build a park around it. Uh, And it will have like an amphitheater, uh, the town farmer's market. And so that will open in November. November 2nd is our grand opening. So right now it's a lot of sort of figuring out what that grand opening is going to look like, membership, campaigns, all that kind of thing. 
Fantastic. Well, we'll have to join you. Hopefully, uh, I guess everybody follow these guys on um, Instagram and Twitter and all that, and you'll probably put up some info about that, I'm assuming. Maybe you? Oh, yes. I guess. Okay. Good. So we'll know exactly what's happening. All right. And last but not least, Jen Dassel, everybody. Give Jen a round of applause. <laughs> Jen, you are the Associate Curator of Contemporary Art here at the North Carolina Museum of Art, and you have your own podcast, Art Curious, with this fabulous tagline, the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. Love that. How did you choose podcasting as a way to share your knowledge, and how do you source these fascinating stories that you tell? Good question. I think like you, I'm also a huge fan of podcasts and I've been listening to them for a long time. And I really love that podcasts are so democratic in their nature. Anybody can access them. Anybody can get them. They're mostly free. And uh, it's just a really nice way to kind of have your own personal moment of storytelling. That's what I've always really loved about them. And for me in my day job, I usually meet one of two people. I meet the people who say that they love art. They come to the museum all the time and it really fills them with joy. I'm assuming that's everyone here, hopefully. Um, but then I also meet people who say, I'm just not into visual art. I think it's boring. And so for me, it's all about the stories behind the art that really drag you in. And so I thought podcast is a great way to tell stories about art, even though you can't physically see a work of art in a podcast. It still works. Fantastic. Well, we're thrilled to have all of you here and I want to thank all of you for all the contributions you've made to this project. And uh, thanks to the crowd for being here. And now I'm going to throw it to Jen Dassel. She's going to introduce our first guest. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Okay, I want to introduce our first artist. Maybe you noticed her at a party. You were probably drawn immediately to this social, fun-loving artist based on her positive outlook and her fierce insistence on inclusivity. Or maybe you noticed her because at that social gathering, she wasn't simply milling about. She was painting. Right there, in the middle of the crowd, creating bright, beautiful canvases running the gamut between abstract and representation, but oftentimes creating scenes celebrating brave, strong women. How interesting, but also how right that this risk-taking bright person gets her energy and her drive to create while in the midst of friends. Because it is partially through her friends that she is here now as a full-fledged artist. She didn't originally intend on being an artist, though she was always painting and creating and drawing, even from a young age. But through the motivation of her loved ones, here she is making it happen with joy, energy, and pride, following her path that took her from Durham to Elkhart, Indiana, and then back again to Durham. And it's this sense of going with the flow, of allowing things to take control, that brings her life into her works. As the artist herself says, quote, an inner voice guides me through the painting process. I don't plan colors, placements, or patterns. I feel my way through the work. I create with my mind but my heart tells me when it's complete, unquote. In three words, she describes herself as a dreamer, a risk taker, and authentic. So now here she is. Please give a warm NCMA welcome to the one and only Candy Carver. 
<laughs> hey there, Candy. Hi, Jeffrey. When I think about your work, I do think about um, what Jennifer talked about, the social aspects of it. You um, do a lot of events and things in public and with uh, people. Talk about how that works in relation to when you're just by yourself in your studio. Does it, does it seem different? What is that all about? I actually enjoy having people around more. You do? Oh, yeah. Why, why is that? I'm an only child and I'm an extrovert. I like people. Mm -hmm. I want to be around people. And oftentimes when I'm painting in studio, I can't do that. Right. So I'll post on some form of social media, hey, if you're off today or working from home, because there's a lot of people in the area who, you know, telecommute or have non-traditional jobs or entrepreneurs themselves. And they'll come over, watch Netflix or they'll listen to podcasts or something. Or I like company. I know a lot of people who think that having others around while they're creating is distraction. So tell me how you deal with that. You're not distracted. You're energized and excited when someone else is with you. Yeah. I mean, you said it yourself. So like, I, I just am. I, I like being around people. So it doesn't take anything away from it. Just depending on the people, depending on who's there. It may take me a little bit longer to complete a, a piece or something, but... It doesn't change the time frame that much. I like people, you guys. <laughs> um, I don't get to do it as much as I like to anymore, just because some of the stuff that I've been working on lately has been like three foot by four foot, and it's hard to put that in my trunk and like drop it in somebody's living room. They look at me strange when I do that. <laughs> but if, when, when it's smaller, like this piece is smaller, um, and I just drag it with me over to my friend's house. And we watch television. Um, sometimes in very large groups. I think I've painted during a boxing match before. Like, you know how they have the, um, what are they called, the undercards before it starts? Painted probably around 20 or 30 people before at a boxing match. Anywhere I can. I mean, why not? And, and I ask for permission after the fact. No, no, I don't ask for permission. I lied. Sorry. <laughs> I, I yeah, what is it? How does that go? Because that's uh, what I do. That thing yeah, you where you ask, you, 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 um, ask for forgiveness. Ask later. Yeah, I ask for forgiveness because I don't ask for permission. Right. And usually it works out. The so far, so good. Nobody usually turns me away. They usually invite it. Now, if anyone knows Candy, then you know that she's very invested in Durham and the Durham community. Talk about how you feel about that, how you want to tie yourself to the community and, and generate positive things. Well, I probably have to start here. So I was born in Durham, North Carolina, but when I was an infant, we moved to Indiana. And very early, it was very obvious to me that I didn't fit in very well there. And not to speak ill of the place, I just didn't think, talk, have the same interests as the young people, like my counterparts in my community. I didn't, we didn't share the same goals. And so within the first decade of life, I knew I needed to move back to North Carolina, Durham in particular. I didn't know exactly why, but I, I'm an only child. All my cousins and my uncles and my aunts and my grandmother live here. Um, but I knew from visiting that it felt good. And I, I'll tell you, this whole, the whole time that I lived in Indiana, I was kind of outside, not fitting in. Like, who is she? Why does she, why does she talk about that? Why does she do that kind of person? And then I moved back to Durham in 2007. And I'm so thankful that I was comfortable retaining who I was because when I moved back here, it was embraced. 
and I found other people that were like me. So I recognized that, uh, that I didn't need to let that go, that it was a good thing that I held on to who I was. It made the whole city of Durham feel like home. It wasn't just coming home because I was born here or coming home because my family was here. It was coming back to the city that understood me in a way that, that I wasn't accepted where I, where I lived previously. It's, it's deeper than just, oh, there's cool culture and it's really diverse. It's deeper than that. Right. You know, those are really important aspects, but the place feels like home. And it's not just by way of the, by way of family. It's by way of family that I've made that aren't blood relatives, where the way you can walk around Durham and be completely accepted by the majority of people you interact with like their family. Um, that's a really good feeling. And that's something that I didn't have readily available in my earlier years. I wanna ask you about your subject matter and also your use of color, because I think they are fantastic and super fun. So tell me about women as your subject matter predominantly. No offense to gentlemen. <laughs> women just come in a much more visually interesting variety of shapes. <laughs> and I feel like we can all agree with that. <laughs> right, right? <laughs> And I think that maybe too often we even throw women in boxes of what we're supposed to look like. It doesn't matter if it's photography, it doesn't matter if it's uh, like uh, cinematography or painting or drawing. It's mostly male dominated. So it's mostly men creating women that they want to, that they desire. Shape the way they think women should look. Right. And oftentimes it's not accurate and it doesn't make us feel empowered or important or good. Use small words, those work just as well. <laughs> <laughs> and so your use of color obviously really plays into that sense of empowerment because I love that you're using bright, very bold colors, strong outlines, strong shapes. That all feeds into that sensation? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it feels good to my eye, well, both of them. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of how I process through stuff, whatever feels good to my eye, and that's how I know where to go, when to stop, and that's kinda how I, I roll. There's not, I'm not sitting like, oh, I need all this blue here, I need these reds. It's just, it comes based on whatever feels, feels right, you know? Um, so I didn't start painting heavy, like I do now, until I and my ex-husband separated in like 2012, and I remember knowing when like the issue was hitting the fan and I'm a, like a planner in, just in terms of how I function in life. And so I wanted to be prepared. And so I found this book on Amazon and I put it on my Kindle and it was like, what to do when you're getting divorced or something. It was just <laughs> <laughs> so um, I remember reading this book. The whole, I, I spent the day I committed to reading that book that day. I was like, I'm, I need to finish this book so I know what to do. So I read this book, and the only thing that I remember from the book is that it said you need to find something that's calming, right? Meditate or do yoga, right? So at the time, my ex-husband still lived there. So I don't think he knew that I knew everything I knew. So I was in my uh, clothing closet doing yoga to the best of my ability that I could. And like that's where I was meditating at. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it kind of started as some kind of like 
early healing process, right? To find something positive, to focus on something that felt good. And oftentimes when we're hurting or struggling, we'll do destructive stuff, you know? Had a bad day at work, you have four drinks of tequila. That's okay, just don't drive anywhere. Or, you know, you hurt other people because you're hurting. And so I think I just chose a different route and it wound up allowing me to paint more. So I've just gone with the flow of whatever feels good because I started riding that wave a few years ago and just recognized the benefits of it. I think I answered the question or maybe I made up an answer. It was great. Well, thank you, Candy Carter. You're welcome. <laughs> And now, a word from our sponsor. Real Kitty Kitty Litter is the first and only all-in-one pet kit. Are you tired of having to make two trips to rescue a new cat? We thought so. First, you have to drive all the way to the shelter and then off to the pet store. To hell with that. Real Kitty Kitty Litter comes with a free kitten in every box. You're welcome. Hurry now while supplies last. Seriously, hurry. Real kitty kitty litter. Meow. Okay, our next artist. Open to possibilities, yet flummoxed by indecision. Such phrases are the ones that our next guest has used to describe her journey to becoming an artist that she is today. Take her educational background as an example. This artist wanted to take college courses in drawing, painting, and art history, but wanted just as much to study calculus, physics, and matrix algebra, noting that each subject was, in her words, quote, easy. That math and art could naturally be connected was understood, but even so, when motivated by course credits to choose one major instead of two, she selected a bachelor's degree in applied mathematics because, as she writes, quote, Besides sounding more capable and smart, that decision was guided by the myths that you can't make a living as an artist and that you may have to support yourself, unquote. To me, this wish to live in the in-between, bridging multiple interests all at once and pursuing contrasting goals simultaneously, can also be helpful in understanding this particular artist's work. In her paintings, words appear to the eye and then seem to disappear just as quickly marred or covered by the artist's own marks. We think we see a form or a pattern emerging, but are we really? Order and chaos seem to come together and live in this enthralling netherworld. And as the artist notes, that's sometimes the point. She says, quote, nothing in these worlds seem rooted or solid. They're fleeting, uncertain, shifting. Places of absolutes are not found. Rather, these worlds are built on the ambiguity of grays. There are no sure or easy answers, unquote. Tonight, I want to welcome an incredible artist who can help us seek these intense answers within ourselves. So please join me in a round of applause for the wonderful Kiki Farish. Hey, Kiki. <laughs> Jeff. Um, uh, when, when I think about your work, I think about the, 
these sort of dichotomies um, in a way. Uh, and you sometimes talk about this sort of fragility, but I think also there's this understood strength in the work. Can you talk about trying to sort of find that line between the two to maybe expose one with the other? Or is that a real question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I use an additive mark making process and a subtractive mark making. So I, I think of it as expressing emotion and then suppressing it. Hmm. And it also brings the figure forward sometimes and then the ground becomes the figure and it's a nice way to keep things ambiguous. You know, people say, oh, I can't draw a straight line. I don't know how you draw anything. And the way I do it is I leave a lot of lost edges so that you are engaged and get something to do. Thinking about that ambiguity, I know that Candy was talking about how she just intuitively knows when a work of art is done. Do you have that same sensation, or do you use that sort of awkward middle ground that we're talking about, that indecision? Does that affect how you decide when you're finished with something? Well, design is based on the real world, so things seem harmonious or seem chaotic in the real world. So I would, I use design principles, but like candy, it's based on my experiences. You know, my intuition is based on experience. Talk about the use of words in, in your imagery. What you're thinking about, how you're pulling those in, what you hope to do with them. Well, I, I feel like I'm using visual language in my mark making and also in my composing. So I'm using inherent geometry in the, the format to sort of decide where to place things. I don't want to just use visual language, and I don't want to just use verbal language. I feel like my verbal skills are really weak. So... <laughs> I want to veil all that, and that goes back to childhood, the patriarchal structures that I was raised in, and the religion that I was raised in, and our culture is still very patriarchal, so I, I try to just veil things and use everything to express whatever it is I'm trying to communicate. So even even the flowers I choose are based on their symbolic language. This is a series, this piece of here, Lessons Carried, and it's about things that we don't teach here in America. And I was trying to think about, okay, so what symbolic flower should I use? What is the national flower? Like for the state of North Carolina, it's the dogwood. Do you know what it is for our nation? It's the rose. Because like the rose garden in the White House, but that one is so loaded with romance that I didn't think that was appropriate. And I was choosing a flower. This was a this was in November. I was thinking about this, and the morning of November tenth, I realized that Narcissus would be the perfect. <laughs> Very nice. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
I hear you. <laughs> so now do you begin with thinking, in this case, were you thinking about beginning with the floral composition, or did the text come first? I'm curious about where text falls in, does it, in the process. Does it come early or does it come later in your process of creating? When I first started these about 10 years ago, um, text came later, but now the text comes first. I even place it first and decide which words I think I want to pull out. So Venus, Venus, Venus is that repetition is hitting you over the head. <laughs> Venus, you know this is about Venus. And male, I wanted to pull the male in there. He's left at the altar. And it actually has Venus of Villendorf and Venus of Tantan. And, and Venus of Barretham is the oldest female figure. She's like 500 to 700,000 years old. And the oldest male figure that we found is 25 to 3,000 years old. Talk about... Um teaching and how teaching someone in that experience informs your own work or how you can respond to doing that. So being in the classroom, being, teaching. Being in a classroom. When you work with someone, what is that response like? You said earlier, like, like, like you used to be a teacher for Sarah West who made your beautiful necklace. What is that experience like and what does it do for you as an artist? Well, most of the time, my students just roll their eyes. <laughs> but being in the classroom energizes me. And one thing about the monster drawing rally that I'm so excited about is that it makes drawing accessible. And it isn't something that we teach, but it's a skill. And if we taught it to our students, like we teach them to read, it would be such a valuable skill for them to have. Because like studies show that when you doodle as you're listening to a lecture, you retain the information more. I mean, there's just so many ways that drawing's important. So I think this rally is really a good way to help people feel like it's accessible and something that they can do, especially with all levels of artists. Right. I think I fall at the very lowest level with drawing. <laughs> and I, uh, but I've, I've agreed to do it, so we'll see, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Well, I don't think any artist works this way. I don't know. Well, Candy does. <laughs> so, I mean, I've been practicing because... You mean being there in front, in front of people while you're drawing? Like that aspect? Or? No, um, trying to come up with something that's, that can be valued at $50 in an hour. <laughs> yeah, is it the time limit or is it the, the monetary part? Which one is the harder part? <laughs> Yes, it's, I mean, it's all of that, this, you know, sitting with a crowd of people around you and trying to produce something. That's a lot of pressure. So it's the different, it's like the polar opposite than you, Candy. Uh, okay. <laughs> so now, before we finish up, I want to ask a little bit about some of the newest works you've been doing. Can you tell me a little bit about your new pieces and how they might be very, um, maybe inspired by November 10th, like you're talking about? Well, when we took a selfie earlier today, I thought about Pelfi. Do you all know what a Pelfi is? It's a selfie of your pelvis. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. Okay. That's fantastic. 
It's on the internet. I didn't make that up. Did you Did you invent this? I believe you. <laughs> that would be something clever that Warren would make up. But, uh, maybe you did. No. <laughs> so most of my work has been rooted in feminism, but I realize how there's just so much about the female body that that even women don't know. And I wanted to think about it for myself and for others, and so I've been asking for pelvis and using that as subject matter. And you have a show coming up that people... <laughs> you can see this work fairly soon, right? <laughs> right, everybody? It's actually up right now in Spruce Pines at a show called Inheritance, and it's up through August 19th. So if you're going to the Penland Art Auction, be sure to make it to Toe River Arts Council. There's some doormats and a runner. That's for high-traffic areas. And it was so cool on Art Curious podcast. Please tell them about the quote. Oh, yeah. So I did an episode a few months back about the topic of the muse in art. And the muse is usually a woman for a male artist. And there was a quote from Picasso where he said that women are either doormats or goddesses. So there was this dichotomy about them being one or the other. And you said that really resonated with you. Well, it did because I, I didn't want to call them. I was thinking about calling these doormats. T.T. and Papa, all these cute little names that we have for female genitalia, for the vulva. Then I decided, no, because what if this arts council, what if I get upset about that? (laughs) So I decided to name them goddesses after pagan goddesses. And so Asherah and Anna and Inanna. And uh, so that really resonated with me. There's another show There's that opens tomorrow. There's another show. It's at the city municipal building, the Block Gallery, and the Vulvas will not be there. <laughs> um, but Educating Alice, some of this series will be there. Thank you, Kiki. Okay, we've got another word from one of our sponsors tonight. Are you tired of using those trendy dry erase boards? We thought so. Maybe it's time to reacquaint yourself with chalk. It's not just for outlining dead bodies anymore. You can write words or even sentences. You can draw pie charts or pie equations, even pie recipes. Oh, and you could take it a step further too. You can draw pictures of your freshly baked pies. Chalk. That's right. Chalk. Ever try to draw on a sidewalk with a dry erase marker? It doesn't work. Hey, dry erase markers. It's chalk calling. Eat. Our. Dust. Don't You Lie to Me is physically sponsored by VAE Raleigh. Bless their hearts. This doesn't mean that they give us money, but it does allow us to accept tax-deductible donations to help us keep this podcast on life support. We have big plans for this podcast, so any amount that you can contribute will go a long way in helping us get there. It's pretty damn easy, too. 
Go to don'tyoulietome.com and click on the sponsors page. Okay. So you could say that a kind of archaeology is at play in this next artist's work. As a child, he would explore country roads on his bike with his twin brother, miles and miles from home. One fateful day, they discovered a small abandoned house in northern Durham County. Curious and emboldened, they entered to find rooms strewn about with domestic detritus. Looking back on this discovery, the artist later wrote, quote, there was an electric feeling sifting through these belongings. I remember trying to figure out who had lived there, trying to imagine what they were like just by looking at old scraps that were over 20 years old. It was like being a detective, unquote. Little did this preteen know that this encounter would profoundly change his life's direction. His paintings are an excavation into the past, uncovering not only the specifics of a location, but also the concepts of memory, loss, and the passage of time. In the years that have followed since his childhood explorations, this artist has, known, has shown both nationally and internationally, and yet his style, subject matter, and influences still stem from these formative local experiences. In three words, he describes himself as curious, playful, and grateful, and he's an artist who is part of the NCMA's permanent collection, and here he is. Please welcome Damien Stommer. Hey, sir, get in here. <laughs> so I think a lot about uh, when, when Warren and I started the podcast, so much of it was about uh, wanting to connect and be more aware of what's going on in North Carolina and, and the value of place. And when I think of your work, I think a lot about the value of, of a place and, and the awareness of what's around you. Can you sort of talk about how you approach sort of finding that subject matter? Yes, for for me, it it comes from my own personal memories and the place where I grew up. So I'm very fortunate right now to have a studio in the same woods that I played in as a child. So I think there is a power to place. It, it might be hard to exactly put in words, but everyone has this feeling when they go home or to to a land, a landscape, a feeling. Uh, maybe in a summer night that that they've known for a long time, there is something very comforting there. And I like to draw on that energy also in, in the subject matter. I mean, these are places and spaces that I, as Jen said, explored growing up. How has that changed over time? Have did this sense of memory, I know we've talked a little bit about the sensation that memories fade and time really does have a major influence on your thoughts and how they change over time. How has the memories of these times when you were a child affect how you approach representing them or recreating them today? One of the things I think about when I make the work is different minds, having different minds. So, so what is it like to have these thoughts of a child and, and how do we see the world then versus 15, 20 years later, and how can you combine them in, in, in an image um, that speaks to memory in the way that it's created? So just like memory is so elusive, it's slippery. I mean, you try to conjure something up or, or find it, but then it's just kind of slipping away and another thought comes in. So I want to I make paintings that actually mimic this process. So I'm, I'm 
putting a lot of paint on and then taking it off and putting it on and taking it off. But in terms of those actual memories, there, there are a couple that are just seared in, in my brain. I think that in times of childhood or adolescence, if you have this adrenaline or feeling of danger, somehow it just writes, it writes it in quite strongly. So I, have, I do have vivid memories that I can call upon, but they change too. It's hard to trust a memory in a way. So you, you went far away for undergraduate work, and, but you studied with someone that a lot of us here um, know. Can you talk about that experience and what being away from here meant and also working with her, which is, is uh, the great Beverly McKeever? That's right. Um, Beverly, I was so fortunate to, to work with her, and it was actually my mom was like reading Art in America or something and said, hey, this professor is at Arizona State, but she's from North Carolina. You, you should take her class. And I didn't, I didn't even know. Um, so thanks, Mom. Um, but Beverly turned out to be an amazing mentor, someone who I respect for her incredible honesty about not only the way she works, but speaking about her work and not being afraid to, to go inside herself in a very deep way um, and then sharing it with the world. It's, it's disarming. It's, she's, she's funny that she has a documentary um, called Raising Renee. If you haven't checked it out, it's, it's very powerful. So it's funny in life how we can, these threads are kind of tied together. You can go all over the world, but things are intertwined. So I'm, I'm very happy that we're both back in North Carolina and she's still a, a guiding force in not only my artistic career, but in so many others as well. It's funny because um, in talking to her, she, she's very aware of when she doesn't know an answer to something. Like she, she has an instinct and she doesn't know why she'll do it. And I feel like that you, when I look at your work, I think about those same sorts of things. Like you're, you're working through it in the making. You're not like, this is what I'm going to paint and I'm, I paint it. It's, it's so much about working through and finding that thing that's there. Well, thank you for that insight. That's, I, I agree. I mean, that's what I feel. It's, it's about discovery. It's the same as when you're kind of looking through a barn or sifting through these things. For me, painting in that process, I learn, I discover through actually working. It would be quite boring for me to have it totally planned out and then just hit print or execute or whatever and just do it. That's, there's nothing there for me in that and it, it's really about getting in there and not knowing and pushing it almost to the brink of collapse not being afraid to ruin a painting and then having some kind of faith that you can you can bring it all back together tell me about color because i know we've talked about this a little bit in the past but some of your older pieces were much more monochromatic much more black and white almost reminiscent of an old photograph but you have really pushed more into color, as you can see from this image on the screen. Color was always present, but now it's becoming much more of a force. Where has that change come from? The older works, for them, I was really concentrating on mark making. And color is such a strong element. It, it can be distracting, in a sense. So I wanted to really build this toolkit, really just have a, a, a lexicon, a library of different marks I could use with painting, and I, I kind of turned down the color, even though there, is, there are some bright colors that seep through, so I could really focus on the marks. And 
I've just turned the volume back up. And it's a, it's a constant balance game. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult for me to create something that looks old, that looks aged, but yet, if you look at it, it has brilliant colors within it. So how do you, how do you fine tune that? So it, it has, a, has that time sensibility to it, but also looks very present, very, very now, very in, in the moment. Do you still start with photography as your basis for your, for your paintings? Yes, so I will go out and take a lot of, of reference photos. Mm -hmm. I've thought about doing some plein air stuff outside, which is, is an exciting thing to think about, but till now the logistical um, problem of, of getting a six by eight foot panel out on the side of the road somewhere um, <laughs> has limited me to, to taking a lot of photographs, um, printing them out, and then working, working from there uh, back in the studio. So, like you said, a six foot, six foot by eight foot panel. If you don't have a specific show, if you don't know where this work is going to go, how do you just start a new series? What what drives you in a certain direction? Well, I can speak to the most recent series. I had a couple of pieces in the the show that Jen so graciously curated last year at the museum. Um, a few interiors, and I thought that I want to make a whole whole show of these. Um, that they have that mystery, they have that, this kind of sense of, of not knowing that was very exciting to me. So I kind of followed, as some of the other artists have, have said, you kind of follow your, your nose and, and see what you're most excited about. Um, so I'm, I'm putting together a, a lot of large-scale interiors without, it, sometimes it's fun not to know where their, their home is going to be, but you can just have the sense that I want to fill this studio up wall-to-wall -wall with the insides of these these places and and I just think about that experience. So I'm I'm pretty much making the show for the studio myself, and then we'll see where it goes. So what's next for you? What's next? I just got back from from a, a residency in Budapest, which was amazing. So I'm looking forward to spending time in the woods painting paintings. I'm fortunate to get to do that every day. I have a great studio manager who helps. Uh, Greg, who helps kind of take care of a lot of stuff so I can focus on painting and just trying to make the best paintings I can. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Well, thank you, Damien. Thank you. Okay, one final word from our sponsors tonight. Are you tired of being bullied by your peers? Always being told you'll never be number one. No matter how successful or popular you become, do they make fun of your name? Welcome to the world of the number two pencil. That's right, people still use them. We're the Dignity Restoration via Name Change Council, or the Dignity Restoration by Name Change Council for short. Either one's fine, we don't really care. Enough is enough. We don't call winners losers. So why is the number one selling pencil in the world cursed with the name number two? It doesn't make sense. Number two is something your kid just did in his pants. Granted, he also does number one in his pants, which isn't cool either, but it doesn't cause emotional scarring. Bottom line, you shouldn't leave pencils lying around while changing diapers. It's just bad parenting. The number two pencil, it's number one. It has an eraser.
is something that's always been a particular interest for me, even as a child, and I read my very first book on dinosaurs. And for the longest time, I wanted to be a paleontologist until art inadvertently found me, snuck in, and grabbed hold of me, and I've never looked back. P.S. It took almost 20 years for that to happen. Our next artist, though, wanted to be a visual artist from a very early age, but she said that she, quote, really found, really fought to make it happen. But before she did so, she was a pre-med student working as a lab technician at both Duke and Yale, and she notes that there are actually a few pharmacology research papers swirling around out there with her as an author. But even in her email to me about this specific scientific exposure, she also said that, quote, she ran PCR reactions which were stunningly beautiful. I had to look this up, by the way. And this is an acronym for polyamorase chain reaction. I hope I'm getting that correct or semi-correct. And this is a common laboratory technique that was used to make many copies of a particular strain or a chain of DNA. But I was really struck by this turn of phrase. She was pointing out that she was enjoying her lab work on an aesthetic level by calling them beautiful. And as such, art never snuck up on her as it did with me. It was with her from the beginning, and it stayed with her long into her extended education. Now she creates tantalizing works about identity, struggle, and support for those who have traditionally been marginalized. Muslims, first-generation Americans, queers, people of color, and those that she calls hybrids. In five words, she calls herself adaptable, curious, restless, communicative, and awesome, in all capital letters. And I'm thrilled to bring her onto the stage now, so please give a warm welcome to Saba Taj. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. One thing I think about a lot when we talk to different artists is um, how a material is used. Um, either maybe someone has a, an affinity or they're really invested in a particular material, or they use that material to speak about something in a certain way. And when I see your work, I think, I think about the latter. I think about you sort of using a... a often like paint a well-known material and the history and what that means, but to turn against that or use it in certain ways, is that totally inaccurate? I think I'm having a little bit of, I thought you were going to get at glitter, like that's what I was expecting you, <laughs> you to ask me about, and then, um, yeah, could you maybe rephrase that a little bit? It, it seems like you, uh, in, in the work that I've seen, the, the paintings, it's an awareness of what the history of painting and paint is. Uh, and you kind of use that in your own way to speak about social uh, and contemporary issues. Yeah, absolutely. I think I grew up knowing I wanted to be an artist, but also not having a, kind of a formal exposure. A lot of it was media and television or textbooks. And so the things that I was most familiar with were really um, ingrained within the dominant narrative, so very recognizable images. I think when I wanted to start making work and assert who I was, I looked back at those images and those materials and kind of found ways to put myself or people like me in them. So 
I think there's like very clear pop culture references or very literal actually like remakings of paintings that I had seen before. Like uh, Rosie the Riveter by Norman Rockwell. I have a version of that with a Muslim woman as one example. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about this concept of the hybrid. Can you talk a little bit about what that means for you and how you represent that in your work? Yeah, so I guess I would be identified as Pakistani-American. I was born and raised in North Carolina. My parents are immigrants, and there's a hyphen in the middle there. And I always found that I didn't quite fit in in either box of Pakistani or American. And this was very clear to me from a very young age. And the, the space that I think I identify with most is the hyphen, is that space in between. And I think that that's true. I, I find that, that this is true for a lot of us because these categorical ideas of who we are um, are often binary. And I think like are, are not accurate to people's experience that we try to fit ourselves into them. And so hybridity to me is a way of embracing that in-betweenness as a place of abundance as opposed to something uh, fragmented or incomplete or that I don't fit in anywhere, but actually this, this space in the middle is where everything is possible. And this is harnessed in the collage works a little bit differently there's some more content there in terms of a interspecies hybridity, which I think talks about what it means to be human and who is dehumanized and those sorts of topics. I'm guessing that maybe that aspect of using collage so strongly in your work also plays into that concept of the hybrid, that you're taking these different elements from other uh, media and other locations and forming them into this new image. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just in, in the form alone, it's exactly that. And I think hearkening back to what we were talking about before with uh, like the dominant narrative, utilizing magazines that I had looked for myself inside of and found these like, I mean, really incomplete ideas or problematic ideas and then tearing them apart and making something new um, is an important component. So it's like there's bits and pieces that we can find of ourselves and Forming them into something I think that's more abundant, like these figures are, is a really fun kind of practice. Now, um, you are just wrapping up a residency at Elsewhere in Greensboro, and that makes me obviously think about uh, using different materials and pulling those in and sort of making them your own. So can you talk about how, what that experience has been like and how it may inform what you do in the future? Yeah, this place is so weird, y'all. You should definitely go. I'm living in it, and so I actually had no idea until I was living in this space. But yeah, there's this collection of stuff that was collected by a woman between um, the mid-1930s and mid-1970s. And the idea is that it's a closed ecosystem, so nothing has come in or left, which is not entirely true. But yeah, it's, there's an abundance of materials. And so I think I've been engaging in a, a really similar practice as the collage, except um, three-dimensionally. So instead of cutting out body parts from magazines, I have mannequin parts um, that I'm working with three-dimensionally and actual fabrics as opposed to images of fabrics and always actual glitter because <laughs> it translates across the board. But um, yeah, it's been, it's been amazing. I'm finishing something up. I was up until 5 a.m. last night, so I'm sleepy. <laughs> but yeah, please come out tomorrow night 
for the opening, I will be debuting a, a creature, like so, kind of like the one you see here, but different. Mm -hmm. And if you're not uh, aware, elsewhere is in Greensboro. It's in Greensboro. It's a really amazing place. Mm -hmm. Are you out of questions? <laughs> I'm going to go next. Um, one, one thing I think uh, it, it's very easy for artists to do, and, and there obviously should be a lot of uh, a lot more opportunities for artists in the world. But I, I love to see artists um, sort of take an initiative and say, "Well, if I don't have a show going on, I'm going to find a way to show my work, or I'm going to do something." a little different. Uh, and last year, uh, when the Carrick moved from their previous location, um, you did something in that space with a group called uh, Durham Artist Movement. Yeah. And talk about the sort of impetus for that and, and what that group was and what you were hoping to do. Yeah, Durham Artist Movement, it was one of my entry points into like a really beautiful community in Durham of queer folks who are involved in progressive work in different kinds of ways. And this was a really loose group of folks who are also interested in, in making art, you know, and trying to make space for that. And, and mostly we just like got together and like hugged and ate empanadas. So one of us like, was really good at making empanadas. But when the Carrick moved, there was this opening, there was this potential. And I think the there's a lot of loaded meaning to space, especially in Durham as it's being gentrified. And so we really gathered together a number of uh, queer folks, queer folks of color in particular, to fundraise, be able to pay rent in the space and have space uh, for art in particular, uh, for collaboration, for shows, for events. Uh, we also really shared the space quite a bit with other progressive organizations that needed space. Um, and so it was a six month thing and it was amazing and I learned so much and it's, yeah, we did it entirely backwards in that we found a space and then suddenly we're like, how do we have an organization? Um, so I think like you'll see other manifestations of Durham Artists Movement come through uh, in different ways in the future, but. A lot of your work that I've seen um, talking about the progressiveness of this community, you also have done things that are in response to the election, like a lot of people have been really thinking about this. Can you tell me a little bit also about your Technicolor, is it Muslima series? Um, I also saw that you were selling some stickers or some prints. Yes. Can I curse? Oh, yes. Okay, yeah. they, they say fuck Please. Trump on them, just to yeah. be clear. Um, yeah, <laughs> Technicolor Muslima was actually the first body of work that I ever made, really, um, with a concrete idea, and it was about this hybrid identity of being Muslim in American and trying to add to the visual vocabulary of that, which is like was essentially non-existent, particularly at that time, which was not that long ago. There has been some progress made. But, yeah, so around the election... I actually had to wait because the woman in on the sticker who I painted was uh, on the Bernie Sanders campaign. And so I, <laughs> I couldn't use it until after he had lost because it was like negative. I don't know. They're not allowed to do that. But um, yeah, so th those stickers, and I think this kind of very straightforward manner of creating um, images and ideas is something that 
Um, it's probably, like, I prefer to do the weirder stuff um, as opposed to the more direct stuff, but I think that it's incredibly important as part of the dialogue and is often undervalued or placed in this context of, um, you know, advertisement or propaganda or whatever, but I think it's a really useful tool and reflective of the fact that, like, not everyone has arts access, and so how do we meet folks where they are um, and also, you know, believe that we can open those things up even more. But yeah, the stickers and things are fun. I paint a lot of banners, like a lot of banners. Um, it's, yeah, it's a good side gig that I don't get paid for. Yeah. Now, uh, you made national news uh, right before, um, uh, was it right before the inauguration you got married? Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, I got... Um, I got gay married. We took as a friend took a photo at the at the courthouse on her cell phone, and it yeah kind of like blew up a little bit on the internet. It was, it was interesting, but I mean we were definitely really motivated and pushed by the fact that we were we were motivated by the fact that like gay marriage had just passed about a year before, and there was you know there's a real fear of of things that could change so. I'm probably one of the most like ambivalent towards marriage people that you'd meet, and I've been married multiple times. <laughs> but <laughs> maybe that says something about it. It's only twice. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, I think it was definitely like a, it was politically motivated in a lot of ways, and and you know we wanted to be able to take care of one another and things like healthcare are absolutely in flux and it's hard out here, especially as an artist and my wife is an artist as well. So yeah, we wanted to be able to care for and protect one another and yeah, it got, it went out there on the internet. Who knows Incredible. how these things work. <laughs> well, thank you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, everyone, for coming out. Thank you to Jen and Jeff and Warren for producing these amazing podcasts for us. And thank you very much, Candy, Kiki, Damien, and Saba, for being our honored guests tonight. And thanks again. And we hope to see you again at the museum really soon. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Hey there, Kelly from Lump Gallery. Hello. Why don't you tell us about something going on down there? Well, so in August, we have an exhibit that's all virtual reality. That's not possible. It is possible. <laughs> and it's it's here to stay, Jeff. It's kind of scary. Oh, man. I know. I know. So we got to get on board. But this show is called Before the War. And the team, first of all, the artist and the animator is my friend Tyler Jackson. The rest of the team is Alicia Hawkins. She's the project manager. Doug Kinnison, the developer. Derek Childress, a 3D artist. Alec Davis, sound designer and composer. And Fabian Marquez, who's the story consultant. So Before the War is a first-of-its-kind art exhibition in North Carolina. And it'll take visitors on an immersive journey, pushing the boundaries of what's possible. And it's kind of based on the artwork, the sketches, paintings, models of Tyler Jackson. Experienced through the medium of virtual reality, the loose narrative unfolds through six vignettes exploring life, death, and afterlife of mysterious knight Sir Bishop Jenkins. 
So, <laughs> And so am I wearing something on my head? You will be. So you'll come into the gallery. We're building four different spaces, 10 by 10 spaces. So the only thing you'll see in the gallery possibly is just white walls and different cubicles. And you'll walk into one side. We'll have to have a registration process to make it go smoother. But you'll come in. You'll put the goggles on. We'll adjust you. We'll kind of give you some information and directions. And then you go into the space and you experience this um, exhibition. Oh, man. I know. I'm excited about this. I am too. I'm going to come to this. Will you let me come to this? Yes. You just have to register or schedule a tour or something. Oh man, that's super cool. It will be. Tell me the dates of this again. So this opens August 4th and it will run through mid-September roughly. And where can I find out about this online? Our new website is lumpprojects.org, but you can also visit us at our old site, which is teamlump.org. Thank you. You're welcome. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our previous episodes. You can find them on our website, don'tyoulietome.com, or wherever you found this one. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, you can help us out by subscribing and leaving a comment and or rating us on iTunes. All of these things make a huge difference in helping us receive higher rankings, which helps us gain sponsors. You guys are amazing. Don't You Lie to Me is physically sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c nonprofit creativity incubator. You can find out more about them at vaeraleigh.com. We'd also like to thank Matt McMichaels for the use of his studio, Trusty Woods. Our theme song was written by our own Warren Hicks, and our logo design was created by Artsy Martha. Don't forget to check out our website at don'tyoulietome.com. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and tell your friends and family to listen as well.